Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Jonathan Birch. I'm an assistant professor in philosophy here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Daniel Levitin to the school. Daniel is a cognitive psychologist, a neuroscientist, author, musician, and record producer. He's James McGill, Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, where he runs the Laboratory for Music, Perception, Cognition, and Expertise. He's the author of three best-selling books, This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession, uh, The World in Six Songs, How the Musical Brain Created Human Nature, and most recently, his new book, The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload, which he'll be talking uh, to us about in just a few moments. A couple of announcements first. First, for Twitter users, there's a Twitter hashtag uh, for today's event, which should be there on the slide. Uh, please use that if you're tweeting about the event. I'd also ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. And please bear in mind that this event, evening's event is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties, after the event has taken place. Now, as usual, after the lecture, Daniel will talk for about 40, 45 to 50 minutes, and then there'll be a chance for you to put your questions to Daniel. There'll then be a book signing taking place following the event. Uh, copies of The Organized Mind are available outside the lecture hall, and Daniel will be signing copies right here on the stage. Okay, so now will you please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Daniel Levitin to deliver his lecture entitled The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. Thank you very much. I have a microphone here that does not seem to be on. Is it on? Oh, okay. Uh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm delighted to be here and, and especially uh, delighted to be uh, giving the very first talk in the United Kingdom about my new book. This is the, the launch that you're all part of and thank you for spending the evening with me to talk about the ideas in the book. Um, I really want to talk about three big ideas in the book. Uh, the first has to do with multitasking. Uh, the second has to do with productivity. And third has to do with how we can all improve our decision making. Uh, I wrote the book because neuroscientists have discovered a lot in the last 10 years about why the brain pays attention to some things and not others, why we remember some things and not others, and this is information that I think all of us can use in our daily lives. Uh, it's not always the case that what neuroscientists learn can be useful, but here's a case where it is, and I think it's a shame that so much of this hasn't filtered down to the average reader, to the average person. And so I wrote the book in order to convey both my excitement about the findings in neuroscience and, and their practicality. And as I started thinking about the book, I realized early on that I wanted the book to not just be a typical science book that spun a bunch of theories and then provided evidence for them. I wanted it to be useful. Uh, I really wanted to have some applications of the science. And I thought, rather than letting the data tell the story all on their own, I would recruit some experts, uh, if they'd be willing to help me write the book, people who uh, were highly successful in a variety of different fields. 
I wanted to know what strategies they used to be productive and efficient. And then I wanted to trace those strategies to the science to see if there was a scientific basis for any of them. I read just about every book I could get my hands on having to do with productivity. Get organized now, get organized in seven steps, get organized in five steps, get organized in 30 days, get organized in three days, organize your closet, organize your workplace, organize your home. Uh, and I was appalled that almost all of them had nothing to do with science. They didn't invoke science. It was just one person's view about how you should do this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and yet, among us, there are these experts uh, who really have managed to do uh, a great job of being super productive. So I, um, I met with, as I say, people from a wide variety of backgrounds, highly successful and productive people. I call them HSPs, highly successful people. And they were uh, generals and admirals in the U.S. military. They were government leaders. I spoke to people in the Obama White House about how President Obama deals with email, how he sorts it, how he manages it, how he deals with correspondence. The, I spoke to the person in charge of the White House mailroom. Uh, I also spoke to the CEOs of some of the biggest corporations in the world, uh, as well as Nobel Prize winners, scientists, artists, musicians, uh, choreographers. Uh, again, people from all walks of life and, and tried to figure out what what it is they're doing that works, and if there's a scientific basis for it. And that's some of what I want to share with you here tonight, and, and a lot of it is, is in the book. Before I get started on the three big ideas, uh, the multitasking, the productivity, and the decision-making, um, I want to just review, you know, the, as Jonathan said, the title, Information Age, uh, Information Overload, rather, is in the title. What do we mean by information overload? What is that? And do we, do we have any numbers? Yeah, I'm a scientist. I like looking at evidence. Is there any evidence that we are in an age of information overload? Well, for starters, uh, we take in five times as much information every day, on average, the average one of us, we take in five times as much information every day as we did in 1986. That's the equivalent of reading 175 newspapers from cover to cover. In our leisure time, we process 34 gigabytes of information. If you go shopping, uh, 1976, the average grocery store had 9,000 unique items. Today, that same grocery store has 40,000 unique items. And because the average person gets almost all of their grocery shopping needs met, in just 150 items, it means that every time you go to the grocery store, you have to ignore 38,500 items <laughs> just to fill your cart. I don't know what the statistics are here in Britain, but uh, in the US and Canada, the average American and Canadian says that their garage is too full of stuff to pull their car in. Uh, they're overloaded with physical stuff. So with all that's going on, all this, oh, one other statistic, we live in a world with 300 exabytes of human-made information. If you don't know what an exabyte is, don't feel bad. I had to look it up. It's a new number they recently invented to deal with this kind of thing. It's a 300 followed by 18 zeros. 300 exabytes of human-made information. To put that in perspective, if you were to write down each piece of information on a 3x5 index card like this, 
Just one person's share, just your share of that information would cover all the um, surface of Massachusetts and Connecticut combined. And that 300 exabytes, well, five years ago, according to Google, there were only 30 exabytes of human-made information. So in the last little while, we've created more information than in all of human history before us. That sounds to me like information overload. So maybe you're thinking, well, at the end of the day, since I can't keep up with anything else, I can't keep up with the news and Twitter and Facebook, at least I can go home and watch some YouTube videos and keep up with that. So I'll watch YouTube for an hour. But you should know, if that's your plan, that every hour that goes by, 6,000 hours of new videos are uploaded to YouTube. <laughs> so every hour that you watch, you're 5,999 hours behind. Uh, again, information overload. It's, I, I'm overloaded, so I've been writing things down on cards. Uh, information overload to a neuroscientist, I would say it's a mismatch between how much information the brain can consciously handle and how much, of it, how much it is exposed to. I think, I think all of us feel this. It's like trying to drink from a fire hose, trying to deal with all the information that's out there. You can get water from the fire hose as long as you don't stand right in front of it. You have to employ some strategy or you're going to get knocked over. And that's what a lot of the book is about and what a lot of the, the talk tonight is about. So um, multitasking. It turns out that multitasking is a myth. Uh, the brain just doesn't work that way. We didn't realize this until just the last few years. The work of Earl Miller at MIT and others has shown conclusively multitasking doesn't really work that way. You think you're juggling all these different things at once. It's our strategy for dealing with the information age. But it doesn't work because the brain doesn't handle all those things at once. The number of things your brain can consciously attend to at any one time, if you've studied cognitive psychology, you may have read that that number was somewhere between seven and nine. Turns out that's wrong. We now know it's limited to about three or four. You can pay attention to three or four things at once. Uh, and not even that if, if one of them is demanding a lot of attention. And you've all experienced this. You're driving in your car, the radio's on, you've got your cell phone there, and you might be reading emails or texts on it. You've got your GPS, there's kids talking in the back. That's five things. If something goes wrong in the road, you're at your capacity. If you're looking for an exit or you're looking for a parking place, you instinctively turn the radio down and tell the kids to be quiet because it takes all your concentration to do this. Um, the point is that if we're at work and we're trying to do all these things at once, we may think that we're being really efficient and really effective at, at balancing all these things. But what the brain is really doing, instead of juggling all these things at once, is rapidly shifting attention from one thing to the next. You pay attention to one thing for five seconds, you move on to the next thing, you move on to another, you come around and do the first one again. Uh, and in the end, what you've done is fractionated your attention, uh, broken it up into little bitty pieces, and you're not really attending to any one thing. It feels good, though. It feels good because of an illusion that the brain imposes on us that makes us feel like we're getting a lot of things done because there's a lot going on in our heads. But a number of studies in the workplace have shown that, in fact, people who are allowed to sustain attention on one thing for a block of time, 
at the end of the day have gotten more done and their work is judged of higher quality and of being cre more creative than people who were trying to multitask. And I'm sure you've all had this experience that you were talking to somebody on the phone and you felt that they weren't quite there and then you say to them, you're doing email, aren't you? <laughs> right? And the sheepishly they, they say yes. Or they lie and they say no. But you know, they, they can't even do those two things at once without there being some telltale sign. And our work product has suffered as a result. Many, many people in the workplace think they're so good at this that they continue to do it. They ignore the research or they're unaware of the research. And work quality suffers and, and work productivity suffers. Um, the question then is why is it that we think that we're so good at it? Uh, and the answer is very simple. Uh, it's because uh, we're deluding ourselves. Uh, and I can tell you as a neuroscientist that there's one thing the brain is very, very good at. It's self-delusion. You cannot rely on your own brain to tell you what you're good at and what you're not good at. I mean, I, I've had this experience myself. I happen to think that after an evening of four or five single malt scotches, I'm uproariously funny. <laughs> but the people around me tell me that's not so. Just another brain illusion. So, um, with multitasking, you're not saving time, you're wasting time. The other problem with multitasking is that it releases the stress hormone cortisol. Uh, this is bad stuff. Uh, it serves an evolutionary purpose, but one of the things that cortisol does is it makes you anxious and nervous, uh, the stress hormone, uh, and it clouds your thinking. So what's happening is, as you're multitasking, it increases your cortisol in your bloodstream. Cortisol crosses the blood-brain barrier. It's in your brain. Uh, it makes you less cognitively aware. It, it dulls your thinking. So that the very part of uh, your thinking, the, you know, your brain, that you want to be able to tell you you're not as alert as you were or you're not as effective as you were, is itself compromised. It's kind of like being drunk. Your judgment is impaired, so you don't know that you're not being as efficient. Uh, there's actually very few jobs that require balancing this kind of hectic uh, thing that we all try to do. Three of them come to mind. Three jobs that require, well, not multitasking because it doesn't exist, but require this kind of rapid shifting. One of them is air traffic controller. Uh, another is simultaneous translator at the UN. Uh, and the third is kindergarten teacher. <laughs> or, or maybe just mom. Uh, but for the first two jobs, it's no coincidence that if you're an air traffic controller or a simultaneous translator, it's no coincidence that, that in those jobs, breaks are mandated. You're required to take 15 to 30 minutes off after an hour and a half or so of duty. Is, this has come after many investigations into accidents, really. Uh, if an air traffic controller makes a mistake or his or her attention flags, the results can be a, a disaster. Same with a simultaneous translator. You get one word wrong, and you've got an international incident on your hands, right? Could be a, a nuclear war. So they're required to take time off. And you don't have to have that kind of job to learn from their experience. It's a really good idea to take breaks. And uh, this comes from an enormous amount of neuroscience showing that there, uh, the understanding now that we didn't know this 10 years ago, but there are two dominant modes of attention in the brain. 
One of them uh, you're familiar with. It's when you're working, you're on task, you're focused, you're undistracted. We call that the central executive mode of attention because you're, you're getting things done, you're managing your attention, you're managing your thought process, you're managing the work in, uh, before you, you're doing it efficiently, you're not distracted. There are neurochemical and neuroanatomical structures that are keeping you focused. Uh, these involve dopamine, they involve the frontal cortex. Frontal cortex is the, especially the prefrontal cortex, the most highly advanced in humans, is what engages uh, planning, what allows for planning and for, for you know, staying on task, not being distracted. It's not fully formed until you're about 20 years old, which is why, as a, as a rule, adolescents tend to be somewhat more distractible than adults. Uh, the prefrontal cortex isn't yet fully capable of harnessing that concentration and focus. So um, you've got this uh, prefrontal cortex helping you to stay on task. It's the first mode of attention. The second mode of attention we call the mind-wandering mode, and you're familiar with that. It's when you're staring out the window and you're not really in control of your thoughts. Your thoughts kind of meander. They're loosely connected from one to the next. Uh, somebody comes up to you and they sort of have to go like this because you know, you're not paying attention. You didn't hear them come in. Uh, that mind-wandering mode was just discovered about 10 years ago. Um, and in my laboratory, along with my collaborator, Vinod Menon, we discovered the switch that causes you to go back and forth between the two modes. It's in a structure in the brain called the insula. If you put your finger right at the top of your head, it's about an inch below. The insula is what switches between these two modes. And this mind-wandering mode is tremendously important. It effectively allows you to hit a neural reset button in your brain so that when you're focused on a problem and you're just not getting anywhere or you've been, been working on something for quite a while and, and you feel some diminishing returns. If you take a break, and a particular kind of break where you can enter this mind-wandering mode, when you come back to your work, you'll find that you often have the solution to the problem, you're refreshed, uh, you, you see things differently. Why? Because the mind-wandering mode is, is making connections between things that you might not otherwise have seen as connections. Uh, that's what it does. Uh, and it involves a completely separate network of brain regions. Uh, how do you get into the mind-wandering mode? Well, uh, it's not by looking at your computer. Uh, it's by engaging activities that promote this kind of relaxation. It could be meditation, listening to music, uh, going for a walk, exercise, reading literature, anything that will allow your mind to wander. We kind of punish ourselves as a culture for mind-wandering. Uh, we, we think that it's a bad thing and that we're wasting time, but like the people who uh, shun multitasking, people who take breaks in the workplace, according to a number of workplace studies, very carefully controlled studies, get more done at the end of the day, more than compensating for the 15 minutes they took off, uh, and, and their work is judged as more creative. Those, those mind-wandering breaks are essential. Uh, and for reasons we don't completely understand, immersing yourself in nature or looking at pictures or scenes of nature is one very easy way to invoke the mind-wandering mode. Vacations are important, too, for the same reason. Um, 
because they tend to invoke the mind-wandering mode, and you can stay in the mind-wandering mode for a long time. I want to talk a bit now about productivity. Um, what are the secrets of these highly successful people uh, that, are, that are based in science? One of the things that uh, they do is they prioritize explicitly. I think a lot of us show up at work or we, we end up at home and we do whatever's in front of us or whatever it occurs to us to do. We don't, we don't make an effort to prioritize. There's so many things to be done. Uh, you can't possibly do them all. So you start on whatever's in front of you or whatever happens to have caught your attention. But in none of the HSPs that I spoke to do they allow this process to just sort of happen by itself. They're very deliberate about what they are working on. And they engage in what the efficiency guru David Allen, the author of Get, the Getting Things Done books, which I highly recommend, they engage in, in what he calls uh, the mind-clearing exercise. Once or twice a day, they just write down everything that's in their head. Now, Allen didn't know this, uh, but there's a, a strong neuroscience, uh, strong neuroscientific basis for this, a strong neuroscience supporting the idea of writing everything down. When you're at, trying to work at something, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I have, and many people report it. Your mind starts some chatter. You're trying to write a report or read a report, or you're trying to do whatever it is you do for a living, and um, you start getting these voices like, oh, I have to remember to pick up milk on the way home, and I told Aunt Tilly I would call her two days ago, and I forgot to do that, and we've got to plan a birthday party for so-and-so. Oh, and then there's Aunt Rose. Maybe it's time to put her in a home. I haven't dealt with that. Uh, all these things are occupying your thoughts. You remember at the beginning of our time together tonight, I said you can only hold on to three or four things at once. Well, that's four little things going on in your brain right now that are depleting neural resources, robbing your attentional sources from being able to actually focus on your work. You've probably had the experience that you're reading, and at some point you realize you don't know what you've read. Your mind was off somewhere else. It's very hard to uh, combat these voices in your head. It's what makes reading uh, good if you're trying to get in the mind-wandering mode. It's what makes reading difficult if you're trying to stay on task. So David Allen's mind-clearing exercise is you write everything down. The power of that is your brain knows that you've written it down so it stops trying to remind you. Uh, and then what these highly successful people do, having written things down, is they prioritize them. They organize them. Uh, they, they decide what they're going to work on first. Uh, and as I say, they do this once or twice a day. So you show up at work in the morning, you look at your to-do list. If you have it on cards, you can easily pull one out and put it in a different place. If they're on a list that you've written or typed up, you might have to cross things out and rewrite them. But the point is, uh, the order that you happen to write things down is not necessarily the order that you want to do them in. And priorities change during the day. But setting these priorities explicitly has a couple of unanticipated consequences. Uh, here's a problem that it addresses. Uh, the average person says that when they're at home, they find, them thinking, they find themselves thinking about work, things that they wanted to get done that they didn't get done. Have any of you had this experience? You're at home and you're thinking about work stuff? Uh, or how many of you have been at work and you're thinking about home stuff, things that you, you know, things that you wanted to do, leisure activities, uh, errands, hobbies, people you wanted to spend time with. 
the result is you end up being in neither place fully. Part of you is always somewhere else. And I think that's no way to live. When you write these things down and you prioritize them, when you're sitting at your desk and you're working on something, you know that that's exactly what you should be doing with your time. You know that that's how you should be spending your time at that moment. And that, in turn, leads to a great sense of freedom and creativity and serendipity later on, right? If you get done what you're supposed to get done and you know that what you're working on right now is exactly what you should be doing, you invest it with great focus, with great energy and productivity, you then move on to the next thing. At the end of the day, even if you didn't get everything done that you wanted to, you know that at least you got the most important things done. What it allows you to do is make more time to spend with loved ones, to spend with the things you like doing, uh, because you know when you get to that leisure time part of your schedule, that's all you have to be doing. You don't have to be thinking about work. This is what you're meant to be doing during this time. I don't know how many of you have had this experience, but you go out to dinner with somebody, and they're checking their cell phone through the whole dinner, right? They're not really with you because they think they should be doing something else. But if they had prioritized their day and structured it and arranged it, when they're at dinner with you, they're just at dinner with you. They're not trying to do something else. By the way, um, David Allen also has something powerful called the two-minute rule. If you've got a bunch of things that only take two minutes to get done, uh, do them all at once. Set aside an hour in your day where you just plow through them. You may not get them all done, but don't break up your day with little two-minute tasks here and there. Get them all done. Set aside a time when you can do them so that they don't pile up. And at the end of the week or the end of the month, they're unmanageable. The other thing that I found surprising in, in talking to these successful people, almost all of them enforce a kind of productivity period uh, during the day, a productivity hour now and then, maybe 10 to 11 in the morning, 2 to 3 in the afternoon, a, a reserved sac sacred time where they will not be interrupted. They turn their email program off. They might turn off their cell phone. They concentrate for an hour undistracted. This was a big thing in the 80s. Workplaces, employers would, would have these productivity hours where you would put a sign on your door, don't come by between, or on your cubicle, don't come by between this time and this time, uh, or everybody knows that you don't answer your phone then. But now that we're so connected, the expectation is that people should be able to reach us all the time. Remember how it was before cell phones uh, and before answering machines? If somebody called you and you weren't there, you weren't there. They'd just try again later. So then there were answering machines which sort of upped the game of expectations that, well, I left him a message, he better call back, right? He knows I called. Uh, and now with cell phones, uh, you know, if, if you're not home, wherever you are, you should be reachable. And people get really irritated if they can't reach you and if they leave a message you don't call back. The expectations have changed enormously. And I think uh, we don't have to live that way. We can reclaim some of the freedom we had to do what we want to do by just subtle little training of the people in our lives. Tell people in the workplace, I don't take calls between 10 and 11. That's my productivity hour. Or between 10 and noon. Sting, who allowed me to, the musician Sting, allowed me to shadow him for a few days on his tour uh, to see how he manages all the many demands of his life. 
he had uh, on the, this particular tour, it was the police reunion tour, he had a block of time from 2 to 5 every afternoon where nobody disturbed him. And he, he used it for yoga and um, I'm sorry to report he didn't use it for tantric sex as far as I know. But he used it for yoga and, uh, and songwriting and writing in his journal and just meditating. Uh, it was creative time for him. And it was sacred. Everybody knew you don't interrupt Sting between 2 and 5. That's his time alone, his time to be creative. And he's tremendously productive. He's a prolific songwriter. As you know, he wrote a musical uh, that was staged on Broadway. Uh, he's constantly learning new songs to introduce into the set. He has a number of different projects going on. One of the most productive people I, uh, I know of. And part of that productivity is that he prioritizes his time and allocates a time to be focused and creative. Now, you might think that with all of this scheduling and prioritizing, I'm imagining a world of Mr. Spock-like automatons who are rigidly scheduled and can't do whatever they want. But the, the paradox is that that's not the way it feels to people who are in the middle of it. Sting feels tremendous freedom. He feels uh, quite happily uh, that he knows every single day He's going to have this time. And, you know, of course, you know, he's Sting. He can shift it. He can suddenly call somebody up and say, no, I want, I want to have from 10 o'clock hold all my calls. Uh, but you know, even if things get crazy and there are a lot of demands, he knows that he's got that. Uh, so uh, this idea of turning off the electronics and giving yourself some, some time, some unconnected time, is a very powerful one. And lots and lots of people do it. Uh, and there are modifications of it, uh, right? So um, if you're like most people, you probably get an email every five minutes or so, maybe more often, slightly less often. But email has become, especially for people over the age of 35, kind of a scourge. Uh, most people in surveys report that they've got at least 100 unread emails in their inbox that they haven't had time to get to. And they fear they'll never, they will never get to them because new ones keep coming in. I say people over 35 because people under 35 are tending to use email less and less. They see email as old people <laughs> communication medium. They're texting and phoning and doing other things. But the point is email is a particular problem. And a lot of people say, well, I, I can't turn off my email. I, I, that's how I do my business. Important things are coming in and I need to deal with them in real time. The problem is that those important things are coming in alongside very unimportant things, like a cute video of a panda, or a cat playing the piano, or an invitation to a party that's a month from now. And when you get that ping noise that the email's there, you don't know until you look at it whether it's one of the important ones or one of the unimportant ones. So one of the strategies that uh, these HSPs have adopted is they open up a second email account with a different name, uh, you know, email accounts are free these days. So uh, they open up the second email account and they give that address to a very small number of people that they want to be able to reach them right away. So it might be your, your spouse, your children, your parents, maybe your boss, a few employees, clients, coworkers, but uh, you know, relatively small number of people, 10 or 12 people. That email, and oh, and then you further instruct those people, if you're sending me an invitation to a party or you're talking about something that's not urgent, use my old email account. This is just for urgent communication. 
you leave that one on all the time, and then the other one, you check in on it when you feel like it. So instead of it ruling you and telling you when it's time for you to do email, you decide when it's time to do email, and you open up and you plow through them. Very powerful productivity tool. The problem is that we're easily distracted, uh, and that email ping, well, there are two problems with it. One is it's distracting. Uh, an unread email in an inbox has been shown in one British study to effectively lower your IQ by 10 points uh, because there's this, all these thought processes occupied wondering, is this important? Is it not important? Is it urgent? Is it not urgent? Am I going to have to deal with it? Is it going to be interesting? Is it going to be good news? Is it going to be news at all? Uh, right? So the, you, you're distracted by all of that. And then the additional problem is that when you, uh, when you look at it, you have to make a series of decisions. Uh, do I want to deal with it now or later? Am I going to file it? Am I going to reply to it? Uh, do I, uh, is it spam? Do I forward it to someone else to deal with? Each of those decisions exacts a biological price. Neurons are living cells with a metabolism. They need glucose to function. And each time you make a decision, you use up a little bit of glucose. And I'm sorry to say that you use up the same amount of glucose whether it's an important decision or an unimportant decision. So five decisions like, do I check the email now or later? Okay, I've checked it. Do I reply to it? Do I forward it? Uh, do I do a little research before I answer? Do I file it away somewhere? That's five decisions right there. After a short period of time doing that, you're no good for making important decisions. Uh, so you, you reach a point of decision fatigue. So people in, in the White House who have important decisions to make have adopted a rule, for the most part, if they can, they make the important decisions early in the morning before decision fatigue has set in. I want to talk about decision-making now, um, and a lot of this rests on the work of my mentor uh, when I was a student, uh, Amos Tversky, and his colleague Danny Kahneman, who wrote a really good book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, Danny also helped me with, with The Organized Mind, uh, and we can talk about that a bit later. Um, what Kahneman, Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for the work that he did with, in economics, as you probably know. Uh, he's a psychologist, but he won it in economics for his work on utility theory and uh, the ways in which we humans are not really wired to make rational, logical decisions. Uh, all of the different pitfalls in decision-making. And it seems that one of the most fraught errors of bad decisions is in medical decision-making these days. Uh, sooner or later, all of us are going to be put in a situation where we have to make a medical decision that might be a life-or-death decision, either for ourselves or for a parent or a loved one. <laughs> And because um, decision-making is so difficult, I mean, rational decision-making, again, the human brain didn't evolve to, to deal with statistical information or properly evaluate conditional probabilities and Bayesian probabilities, which are the tools you need to approach these things properly, um, we end up making bad decisions, and they can be very costly when we do. Add to that that the stress of sitting in a doctor's office and having the doctor go through all these reports and tests and using terminology you haven't heard before 
the stress hormone cortisol kicks in again, and it clouds your thinking, and so you're not at your best. All this suggests that you put some strategies in place now, ahead of time, before the moment uh, that you need it, to ask yourself, how am I going to deal with uh, these important decisions when they come up? What strategies will I use? Uh, can I practice a little bit now for different kinds of outcomes, different kinds of questions I can ask, uh, so that when the moment comes, I'm, I'm practiced and I'm prepared and I'm ready. Uh, I asked Kahneman when I was writing this book, is there anything that you had wanted to put in thinking fast and slow, but you didn't think of it until after it was published? And he said, yes. He said, the one big idea is planning ahead for disaster. Think ahead to what could go wrong so in your life. Uh, and that's a component of, of sound decision making. So as an example, uh, if you're traveling and your visa card gets stolen, your credit card gets stolen, you want to call the credit card company to tell them it's been stolen, both so that they can issue you a new one, but also to stop payment uh, of any new charges that come in, which would presumably be fraudulent. But the number that you have to call is on the card. <laughs> and the card's just been stolen. So what do you, and it, it's fiendishly difficult to find that number, let me tell you. So what Kahneman says you should do is, is take a cell phone picture of that credit card, and at least if your cell phone wasn't stolen too, you've got the phone number there. Take a cell phone picture of your passport in case it gets stolen, you've got that. Upload them to a Gmail or account or to a, a Google Drive account so that even if the cell phone's gone, as long as you can get to the internet, you can get these things uh, if you need them. And part of this planning ahead strategy is to think ahead uh, to medical situations. And so I want to illustrate um, uh, the kind of thing I'm talking about with uh, an actual example. Suppose you go to the doctor and your doctor tells you, just got back your blood work, I'm a little worried about your cholesterol. It's high. Now you, you, you're familiar with cholesterol, you know that it's a predictor of heart disease and uh, stroke and you know, various bad outcomes, and, and having a lower cholesterol is better than having a high cholesterol. So you know, you're, you're thinking, okay, the doctor's making sense. He says, I want to lower your cholesterol. He says, I, I'd, like to, I'd like you to consider taking a statin. Now, you've heard of statins. They're very widely prescribed uh, cholesterol-lowering drugs. Uh, some of the most widely prescribed drugs uh, these days in, in Europe and North America so you think, sure, I'll, I'll take a statin, and uh, you know, the doctor tells you this is what I want you to take. But there's a question you should ask at this point. It's for a statistic that most doctors don't like talking about, and drug companies like talking about even less. The statistic is called the number needed to treat. Have any of you heard of this? So in a room this big, there's three people who have heard of it. This is why I want to tell you about it. It's very important. The number needed to treat is the statistic that tells us how many people have to undergo a medical procedure, a surgery, some other kind of procedure, uh, or uh, take a, a medication, how many people undergo the procedure or treatment before one person is helped? Now you're probably thinking to yourself, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. My doctor, number must be one. My doctor's not going to recommend something if it's not going to help me. But that's not the way medicine works. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline, uh, themselves, who have every interest in uh, reporting uh, this statistic differently, they estimate 
that 90% of prescription drugs work on only 50% of the patients they're prescribed for. Uh, and in fact, the, the real statistics are much worse. The number needed to treat for one of the most widely prescribed statins in the world today, how many people have to take it before one is helped by it, before one person sees their cholesterol lowered, uh, and, and fending off you know, the complications of high cholesterol, number needed to treat is 300. So you're thinking, okay, well, what the hell? I, I, I'll take the pill, it'll lower my cholesterol. I'll, it, you know, I'll take a 1 in 300 chance, it'll help me. But then you should ask another question. What are the side effects and how often do they occur? And now your doctor will tell you, well, for this particular statin, side effects occur in 5% of the population. And the side effects include severe gastrointestinal distress, uh, debilitating muscle and joint pain, shortness of breath, and dizziness. Now you're thinking, well, 5% chance, that's not a very big chance, and yeah, I'd like to lower my cholesterol. I'll still take it. But uh, in a kind of analysis that probably all of you here at the LSE could do in your sleep, and if you can't, I walk through it very um, slowly in the book, uh, you should frame the problem here. We've got 300 people needed to treat. 300 people take the drug, one person's helped. 5% rate of side effects, so out of 300 people, 5% of those, that's 15 people. 15 people are going to have the side effects, one person's going to be helped. You're 15 times more likely to be harmed by this drug than to be helped by it. <laughs> now, I'm not saying whether you should take it or not. That's not the point. The point is that informed consent requires that you have this information so that you can make a decision where you balance different factors of your own personal acceptance of risk, Everybody has a different risk threshold. Balance that with quality of life, other factors. You should be able to go into the decision uh, with this kind of information. Now, if you think I've pulled this example out of the air just for shock value, I haven't. This is fairly typical for drugs uh, and, and for surgeries. The most widely performed surgery in the world on men over 50 is prostate cancer removal for prostate cancer. Uh, prostate removal for prostate cancer, uh, and the number needed to treat for that surgery is 49. 49 surgeries are done for one person who's helped. The side effects in the case of prostate removal include uh, urinary incontinence, something called fecal incontinence, which I had never heard of before. You can only imagine what that is. Uh, erectile dysfunction, and at least one of those occurs in 50% of patients, sometimes only for a year or two, uh, but sometimes for the rest of their lives. Uh, and so you're 24 times more likely in the case of prostate surgery to experience the harm of it than the helpfulness of it. Uh, it just makes you wonder, right? This is information that is not readily available unless you ask for it or unless you have an extraordinary doctor. So um, I think the point here is that these are decisions you can make um, rationally if you know what questions to ask and if you have the tools uh, to ask them. Uh, you know, with, in psychiatry, I, I spoke recently with the, um, the chief medical officer of the UK uh, about psychiatry. Uh, antidepressants, it turns out, uh, work only half the time they're prescribed on average. So I'm talking about Prozac and Zoloft and Welbutrin and the rest. 
when the doctor prescribes it, he or she knows that half the time it's going to work. The patients are going to come back half the time and say this isn't working. Either the side effects are really bad or there's been no change. Uh, and so then the doctor uh, either titrates, that is changes the dose, or switches them to another. And that has a 50% chance of working. And then they switch you to another, and that has a 50% chance of working. And if you haven't killed yourself in the meantime, you might eventually find something that works. This is the state of medical science today. It's not the doctor's fault. It's the fault of scientists like me. We're just not good enough at what we do at tracing the causes, the root causes of disease and the, the, the proper cures for them. We're working on it, but the fact is medical science is still uh, quite vague. Um, the promise in the next 10 years, as we better understand genetics and are better uh, able to do genetic assays, is that we'll be able to say, oh, you've got this gene, this drug has an 80% chance of working on you, or you've got this cluster of genes, that drug won't work at all. There's one disease, the medical, chief medical officer was telling me, there's one disease where we have virtually 100% cure rate. Uh, well, the, the medicine is 100% effective, I should say. Uh, there's a rare form of cancer that affects one out of 200,000 people. And the drug is, is hideously expensive. It's $12,000 a month. Uh, but 99% of people who take the drug find relief uh, for that particular uh, disease. But in all other diseases, you know, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's not precise. And the reason is that the causes of disease interact with our own genetic makeup, right? Each of us has a different genetic makeup, which controls the kinds of antibodies we make, the frequency with which we make them. And there's an interaction between the medication and uh, the genes that we don't understand yet. Probably in 10 years, as I say, uh, we'll have a much better understanding so that you will get drugs that uh, prescribe to you for you as an individual, or you know, for you and your particular makeup. That's pretty much all the formal stuff I wanted to talk about. I covered the three things, the multitasking, the productivity, and the decision-making. I, I have uh, lots more to say, and I'm sure you uh, would like to contribute to the conversation, so I'll, with your permission, I'll end the more formal part of our time together and, uh, and turn things over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, we'll now open the floor to questions from the audience. Um, there's a roving mic going around. Please wait for the, the roving mic to come to you before asking your question. Uh, ideally, please start the question by giving your name and affiliation if you have one. Um, and I, I'd also ask you to sort of please keep your questions fairly brief in the interest of trying to get in as many as we can. Okay, please put your hand up uh, now if you have a question. Well, I have to keep my answers brief then. Uh, the answers can be as long as you like. Um, okay, there's a question at the, at the top there. Just please wait for the mic to come over to you. And then, then one down. Um, I'm called Tom Husband. I'm affiliated with the Royal Society of Chemistry. Um, you mentioned dopamine and cortisol. I think maybe a media-level explanation would be like, oh, looking at Facebook gives you a dopamine pleasure rush, but then that gives you the cortisol stress hormones. A, is there any truth in that? And B, could you maybe elaborate on it, please? Thank you for the question. Um, I don't want to give you the, the media-level explanation. Um, dopamine is the so-called pleasure hormone. Uh, 
uh, and uh, it, I've got two parts to the answer. Uh, in the 1950s, my colleague at McGill, Peter Milner, who at 88 years old still comes into the office every day, uh, discovered uh, that there's a center in the brain called the nucleus accumbens deep inside, about two inches below the insula that I pointed out earlier. The nucleus accumbens modulates dopamine in response to uh, reward. And you may have heard of this study. He uh, took rats in a cage and he uh, put a little electrode in their nucleus accumbens and arranged things, configured things so that if they pressed a bar in the cage, they'd get a small electric charge in the nucleus accumbens and a little bit of dopamine would be released. And they would experience, we assumed, uh, pleasure. What do you think the rats did with that bar? They pressed it over and over and over again. They pressed it to the exclusion of eating and drinking and mating with an attractive uh, rat in the cage. <laughs> and they eventually died from pressing that bar over and over again because this dopamine addiction loop was so powerful. Now, if that reminds you of somebody sitting at their computer and compulsively pressing the check email button, it should, because we're talking about the same thing. Uh, that's true, it's accurate, but it's not a nuanced explanation, which is the second part. We now understand, uh, for one thing, that reward uh, has two components. We talk as neuroscientists about anticipatory versus consummatory reward. It's very important to make the distinction. They involve different neural structures and different chemicals. Anticipatory reward is when you see the cake on the plate and you're thinking how good it's going to be. Or um, you see the email from that special somebody and you're looking forward to reading it because of what he or she might have to say to you. Consummatory is when you're consuming the thing and you get pleasure from the consumption itself. They're different mechanisms. Uh, they're distinguishable neurally and chemically. Uh, dopamine plays a part in, in, in both of them. Uh, opioids play a part in both of them in different regions. Wh which gets to the, the question of subtlety. Um, dopamine f uh, does different things in different parts of the brain. In the prefrontal cortex, it causes you to narrow your focus of attention, which is why individuals with attention deficit disorder take Ritalin or methylphenidate, which increases dopamine production in the prefrontal cortex. So dopamine up here helps you concentrate. Dopamine in there makes you feel good. And there are further subtleties and, um, and nuances. Uh, fact is that uh, it, it's wrong to think that the brain is just a bag of chemicals. And if you just add some more chemical of a certain type, things are going to get fixed. This is largely the problem with the antidepressants that I mentioned earlier. It, they, were, they were working on a faulty metaphor, that the brain is a bag of chemicals, we don't have enough serotonin in there, we'll just put in serotonin and everything will be fine. It's wrong for two reasons. Different regions of the brain respond to the chemicals differently, uh, different receptors respond differently, and the chemicals interact with one another. So as soon as you increase serotonin, you're altering um, you know, acetylcholine and dopamine, and cortisol and a host of other things. Uh, and so it's very, inter very much an interaction of things. Does that, does that answer your question? Uh, yes, yes, thank you. Okay, next question. I'm was sorry, you ask a professor a simple question <laughs> to get a little answer. Um, I'm, I'm Susan Wolf, and I'm, I'm really delighted to hear you. I am a person recovering from 
initially an acquired frontal lobe brain injury, followed by a brain tumor, and then a traumatic brain injury of removing that. Oh, you so, hit the trifecta. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, I recommend your way of learning about neuroscience rather than mine. But, um, <laughs> that sounds like a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> but I have, because there's so little in the medical community knows about the frontal lobe, I have had to be my own consultant through the whole process. And what I've learned, and I have my own copy at home of Candell's Principles of Neuroscience and, and, and all of this stuff, that I, and spend tons of time at the British Library in the science reading room, and things that I've learned, that, and, and listening to you, I'm, because of frontal lobe executive function stuff, that's the planning, that's the sequencing, that's the organizing. Um, and it's hard for me. So I'm either the most organized, productive person in the world, or I'm not getting anything done <laughs> because I have to work so hard at doing things that come naturally that aren't automatic anymore. I have to stop and think what comes next. And I remember when I was first injured, and I, I don't want to spend too long, but unfortunately there's the filter part of the brain that filters what's important to come in. Although it doesn't work filtering what's, what needs to come out. So sometimes I talk too much and I apologize. But I, I remember being so injured that I, would, I could run a bath, I could get in the bath, I could take a bath, but I couldn't remember how to coordinate and sequence my body to get out of the bath. It's interesting. I write about this in the book, about some cases of people with sequencing disorders. Yeah. Uh, very real neural cases, much like what you describe. After, this is how we began to appreciate the role of the frontal cortex in planning. Each of the individual operations for baking a cake, for example, might be done oh. flawlessly, but they're done in the wrong order because the person with the frontal lobe damage has this sequencing problem. Uh, and it's, it's very difficult uh, to deal with. Uh, if you're asking for strategies... I, uh, no, I, I can get out of the bath now. <laughs> <laughs> I got out today. But, um, but, I mean, I didn't mean to be facetious. I find that doctors hate me because I'm not going to take drugs that are going to damage my brain, and so if, if somebody suggests anything, I check it out very carefully. I know my body. I know I've had pharmacogenetic testing. I've done all this stuff. Physicians hate me. <laughs> well, first, I'd like to thank you for your courage in getting through this and for sharing it all with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, the medical profession uh, is different than it was 40 years ago. Um, because of, of the way we pay for medical care, doctors are being, as a society, I mean, doctors are being asked to see, as you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, more and more, because of the economics of it, uh, they're asked to see more and more patients in a shorter amount of time. They're penalized in many jurisdictions for spending too long with a patient. And um, they don't necessarily uh, want to deal with outlier cases. They want to deal with the average case where they can just do the same thing they've done over and over again. And the other thing is that uh, the selection process to get into medical school has become so incredibly competitive 
that, uh, and I know this because I've been teaching in a medical school for 15 years, uh, and, a, and a good medical school, McGill. Uh, the kinds of students who get admitted to a place like McGill, uh, or Oxford, or Harvard, are uh, students who are really, really um, outstanding in their grades and their test scores. But part of the interview is not, or, or the application process is typically not whether they have any humanity or compassion, or whether they even like people. <laughs> Look at Dr. House. <laughs> so um, it's, a, it's a, pro a systemic problem, uh, but it underscores an important uh, message that I, I have, which is that we have to, all of us, uh, it doesn't take a traumatic brain injury to uh, bring this about. We have to all become our own best advocates for our own health care and the health care of our loved ones. We have to use the resources on the Internet we have to use them wisely, uh, using information literacy. Uh, you go to a website, you shouldn't assume that the first website Google points you to is the best source. You look up a drug, ask yourself, is this website being operated by the drug company? Could there possibly be biases in the way that they're structuring and reporting the information about this drug? Or if it's, maybe it's operated by a manufacturer of a competing drug. Uh, maybe the website's 10 years out of date. These are all things that used to be if you went to the library and you got a medical text, somebody had done all that work for you. But we've got to do that ourselves. We're expected to be our own librarians, in effect, uh, and our own editors, trying to ascertain whether the sources that we are engaging with are true, accurate, and, and up-to-date. Okay, the next question was uh, up at the top here. Um, Peter Sozu, uh, LSE, um, you made an interesting point that um, adolescents, in adolescents and even uh, young adults, the frontal cortex is not fully developed. Um, would you care to comment on, a, a, bearing that in mind, a couple of things? First of all, there's a proposal in the UK to lower the voting age from 18 to 16. Um, and secondly, 17-year-olds um, are allowed to drive, even though there's a lot of evidence that their accident rates are much higher than... Uh, than that of older people? These are uh, important public policy questions. And I would add to that, can you hold a 17-year-old responsible for an impulsive behavior, such as a murder committed impulsively, if they lacked the frontal lobe capacity to restrain the impulse? I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. Uh, I think that we've reached a point in neurobiology as a general field that we can now inform public policy with data. Uh, and how the public uses that data, that's not something I feel qualified to, to address. I can just say the data are there. Um, in the case of driving, it, it's, you know, there are pluses and minuses. 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds have faster reaction times, but they're more easily distractible. Uh, they're not as good at planning, uh, but uh, on the other hand, they tend to take shorter trips, uh, stick closer to home. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to balance all, for me to balance all those things. Uh, and in the case of the voting age, I, that's, that's a tough one. Uh, on the one hand, uh, voter turnouts in so many democracies are so low uh, that it's hard, you'd be hard-pressed to say we really enjoy a true democracy. 
Uh, it's quite typical in, in Western European and North American countries that you'll have a turnout of 20% for an election. Uh, so you, could, you can see the arguments for wanting to increase participation. Uh, on the other hand, you want your electorate to be informed, and you could argue that um, uh, you know, 16-year-olds haven't had time to, to become informed enough on the issues. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not being very helpful other than saying that I, I, I appreciate the question and, and I, I appreciate that neuroscience has matured as a field to the point where we can at least provide evidence that might be helpful in one way or another. Okay, the next question here. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Um, my name is Tina Lickley. I work at the Peril Insights team. Um, I had a question regarding kind of cognitive de depletion. So when we're under stress and we start making poor decisions, what would you say in an office environment is kind of a quick fix to that? Is it to eat a cereal bar to get that sugar into your bloodstream or is it to do mind wandering or is there some sort of third solution? Um, and the second question is maybe more of a, a kind of social, political one, um, the scarcity argument that people who are poor are kind of constantly under this kind of stress, not because of time lacking, but because of constant financial worry. And I just thought if you, I could get your thoughts on that. Thank well, you. so in the workplace, what can you do uh, to improve decision-making ability? You know, I would not eat sugar. Uh, I mean, it, it has been shown that eating sugar can replenish the brain's glucose sources quickly and can improve decision-making, but it's a bad long-term strategy because sugar can lead to diabetes and obesity and sugar crash and other problems. Uh, the better thing is to get into some mind-wandering. And in the workplace, it's just a matter of educating employers that if their employees have uh, break rooms and exercise rooms and opportunities to go for a walk or, or just do something different, uh, they're going to increase productivity for the company overall. Um, the second question was about the stress of being at the poverty line. And uh, what was the question again, in particular? Oh, you don't have the mic anymore, sorry. <laughs> Thanks. It's kind of mirroring the first question. So what, what can we do to help their people, people's decision-making who are in that situation? So rather than a stressful kind of office environment, the cognitive depletion coming from the income situation? Well, I, again, as with the earlier gentleman, these are public policy questions, and I don't feel qualified to answer them. I'm, I, I think about them a lot, but it's, it's not my area of expertise, so I wouldn't venture a guess. But I agree. It's something we need to deal with. There's a question over, over here. Hello, hi. Uh, Benjamin Saunders here. Um, I just had a question about uh, plasticity, and it's somewhat linked to the question of uh, young adolescence. But in the case of uh, brain injury uh, during teenage years, um, what is the, the actual science, in your opinion, on how plasticity aids recovery, and um, in particular post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress? So plasticity refers to the idea of neural regeneration or brain structures uh, being rewired after injury or illness. And um, this is still a very young science, and we're in the early days. So we've seen many cases of people losing some part of their brain function and recovering completely. Uh, we know, for example, that if you lose your hearing early enough in life, 
the part of your brain that we call auditory cortex becomes repurposed uh, as visual cortex effectively and processes visual sign language, vice versa. Uh, there are tremendous things that, uh, like that that you, 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 know, you wouldn't have uh, predicted just 20 or 30 years ago. But there are other cases where people, even at a young age, lose some brain structure or function and they never recover. And it's certainly the case that as you get older, uh, after the age of 60 or 70, people have strokes, sometimes never recover. Uh, the system appears to be less plastic. Uh, there could be a, a genetic component to that. Um, we now understand that the nature of genes isn't, it's not just whether you have the gene or not, but whether a particular gene is expressed or not. You've heard this phrase, gene expression. So we're, you know, there are neurobiologists and, and neurogeneticists working on the idea of figuring out how to turn on that regeneration gene again. Not giving you a gene you didn't have before, but just figure out some way to chemically or electrically or some, in some other way get those genes active again, even in older age, so that regeneration uh, and plasticity can occur. But in the next 10 years are going to be very exciting in this field. Uh, okay, let's have a question from over here and then another one. Hi, uh, my name is Aletta. I work in a startup and I was wondering about productivity. Uh, if there were any studies about uh, open space offices, how they affect productivity? There are studies on this, uh, and it depends on the industry, and it depends on the particular people involved. And it mirrors a kind of uh, discussion, I'm not saying they're at all the same, but it mirrors a discussion about flat versus vertical hierarchies in an office structure, you know, horizontal versus vertical. Um, the open office plan for a startup, uh, according to the data that I've seen, really facilitates the startup getting uh, to a point of maturity because in a startup, uh, typically it's not just that there's an open office space, but there's a horizontal structure uh, where you don't have this rigid hierarchy. Everybody's doing a little bit of everything because there's so much to do. Uh, and having an open office plan facilitates communication. That said, uh, a number of startups, you know, I, I work for a startup um, actually in Silicon Valley, a, a new university, Minerva University. Uh, Minerva Schools at KGI is the official name. Uh, we have an open office uh, and we also have some sort of private quiet conference rooms where people can go to use the phone or to just have quiet time and that balance seems important. Uh, in more mature companies, when the number of employees rises, if employees don't need to interact with one another all the time, the chaos can sort of inhibit productivity. But, you know, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of factors there. Okay, and there's another question from, from this side too, foot lower down, second row. Hi, my name's Alice, um, and my affiliation is just general curiosity. Ever since you uh, first mentioned it, I've been curious to know, how does Obama deal with his emails? Um, my source for some of this information is Mike Hayden, who, General Mike Hayden, who was the head of the NSA and the CIA, uh, and uh, also a couple of people who wish to remain nameless who work in the, in the White House near the, um, 
the Oval Office. Um, to begin with, uh, the, the NSA told Obama when he took office that he'd have to give up his BlackBerry because it wasn't secure and anybody could eavesdrop on it. And he says, I'm not giving up my BlackBerry. If anybody wants to eavesdrop or they can figure out how to do it, it's fine with me. So at the last I heard, Obama was still using his BlackBerry or something like it. Uh, I mean, I, I did, the book just came out, but I, I wrote it you know, a couple of years ago, and it came out a year uh, I mean, it came out now, but I mean, I submitted a manuscript a year ago, so there's a lag here. But last I heard, as of 24 months ago, uh, he still did a lot of his own email. Of course, he has a, a private account. Not everybody has. It's not just like, you know, Barack.Obama at WhiteHouse.gov. You know, I mean, it's, it's something else. Um, and then for the big mass of email, there's a White House correspondence office that deals with the tens of thousands of faxes and paper mails and emails that come in. And um, there's a team of about 40 people who sort through it all. And a lot of stuff that's addressed to Obama, as you might imagine, doesn't need to be dealt with by Obama. So it might be somebody who's complaining about something that the Department of Housing and Urban Development should handle, or the Department of Education, or uh, you know, the, you know, some military. I mean, there, there are all these offices in the White House, and the government, as you have here, of course. And people write to Obama as the president but there are people who have more expertise or, or jurisdiction over a certain issue. So those get sorted. And then um, there's a smattering of uh, letters and emails. Uh, he asked when he took office, he said he wanted to see, I don't remember the exact number, you may know better than me, something like 8 to 12 emails a day that are representative of what people are saying and what people are thinking. Uh, from the entire spectrum of people being angry or people being happy or people having some sad story uh, about some government agency that let them down or what have you. He wants to, to see these. So those are extracted for him. He does not go to the actual official Barack Obama email address. Somebody goes through it for him, uh, prints out the, the ones that are important and hands them to him. Uh, and that, that's how he deals with it. You know, but on the same topic, if you've ever seen pictures of the Oval Office, uh, I don't know if you noticed it, I noticed it, his desk is always completely empty. And I asked about this, and it's because he doesn't decide what he's going to work on. That's the job of the presidential secretary, uh, who now is a 28-year-old uh, who sits at a desk right outside and... I mean, it's a, young, it's a young administration, so I'm impressed that it's somebody who's 28. Uh, and, and brings him in a folder and says, Mr. President, uh, this is the stuff you're going to need to read before the next meeting. You've got 15 minutes. And, you know, an entire staff has been devoted to making sure that only the essential stuff is in that folder. And as I was saying before, this is exactly what he should be looking at right now. And so he looks through it, and then the meeting comes. Uh, when that's over, somebody brings him something else. And that's why there's never anything on his desk. I mean, occasionally they'll bring him a stack of things, and you say, Mr. President, look through this stack. But it's brought to him on an as-needed basis. Or he may say, bring me, bring me the Penske file, and, and they bring it in. But um, that's, it's very, very tightly managed. Does that answer your question? Great. Next question down here. Um, my name's Rachel Green. And I was interested to hear your opinion, considering your first-hand experience as a professor. Where's Rachel? So, uh, 
Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> um, considering your first-hand um, experience as a professor and referring back to several questions ago about maturity um, and the idea that the frontal part of the brain only develops after 20 years old, um, I'm 16 myself, and I was wondering... Um, oh, in 12 years you can work at the White House. <laughs> um, I was wondering, do you think universities um, should encourage people to start education after the age of 20 um, to, once they've developed these um, skills in the brain, to plan efficiently and cut down on the kind of idea of pseudo-working, i.e. I've got my textbook open in front of YouTube, therefore I'm studying for my test. You're asking a guy who dropped out of college at the age of 19 to play in rock and roll bands for 15 years <laughs> before going back to school. So my bias is uh, that um, my education was wasted on me when I was young, and when I went back to study neuroscience at 35, I was really ready for it. But um, on the other hand, there are some concepts, uh, such as calculus and some parts of physics, uh, that really take better at a younger age. Uh, and so I would not recommend that students delay starting I think a better strategy is that uh, we just start teaching students younger in around the age of 12 good study habits and uh, that they really should unitask rather than multitask uh, and teach them to structure and organize their study time better uh, so that when they get to college they can make the most of it. Okay, the next question was on this side, second row from the back there. Um, hello, uh, my name is Isabel and I'm studying uh, social psychology here and I just wanted to ask you a bit about uh, mindfulness and the way it's been making it, it's been studied more and more in neuroscience and if you could speak a little bit about the resistance of its application in the real world. I mean there is more pop mindfulness but as an actual way of life and also if you could talk about its application to prejudice, I'd really appreciate that, thank you. Um. Well, there's an emerging neuroscience that supports, uh, that uh, tries to look at the structures that are involved when pe people engage in mindful behaviors. Um, I don't know why, uh, I'm, I'm not a clinical psychologist, I don't know why there's been resistance in the public uh, to it. And I don't know what the um, connection is to prejudice, but I'd like to hear your views on that. Uh, I uh, got more than I bargained for here. Um, <laughs> if everybody could just pay attention, wonder while I answer this. Um, actually, I'm researching the connection between mindfulness and prejudice because there's um, basically implicit um, prejudice that most of us aren't aware that we're prejudiced towards a group of people, um, except when they do these IAT tests and basically they flash a bunch of pictures in front of you and try to associate with a positive or negative word. And it's found that when you have a mindfulness intervention, um, your delay time between associating a positive word with someone from outside of your group or your race is not, uh, is not present anymore, essentially. Ah, okay. I'm, uh, thank you for clarifying for me. I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to want to hear. Uh, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal uh, in which I, uh, I don't know, maybe six, 12 months ago, in which I reviewed in a meta-analysis, the evidence about the IAT, the Implicit Association Test. And as far as I can see, um, it's a completely bogus test. It's, uh, it's not reliable. 
it's not valid, it doesn't measure what it thinks it's measuring, uh, and so there's a, a kind of cottage industry studying racism and prejudice based on the results of the test, but the test doesn't seem to be showing at all what it purports to be showing. And I'd refer you to that or to an article uh, published in the scientific literature, in the peer-reviewed literature, by Hart Blanton, B-L-A-N-T-O-N, of the University of Connecticut. Uh, there's really only a couple of people who are still clinging to the idea that the IAT is effective, and they're, uh, they're really in the minority now. You know, it, it's an interesting study of the way science works. It's a self-correcting process. It can just take a few years for things to correct. But I'd advise you to look at that, and then, and then let me know what you think after you've, you've read the <laughs> Okay, the next question was at the very back there in the middle. Hi. Um, my, my question is on the role of sleep. Um, and what does the evidence say about um, the efficacy of sleeping a certain number of hours a night or sleeping, uh, having a nap in the afternoon and, and so on? So I devote a section of the book to this. A lot of the work has been on sleep in the last 10 years has been done by Matthew Walker at UC Berkeley and Robert Stickgold. Uh, and we've learned uh, as a field in neuroscience a lot about what the function of sleep is, and the answers are somewhat surprising. Um, one of the things that happens during sleep is memory consolidation. We didn't know this 10 years ago. Uh, while you're asleep, your brain is turning over the thoughts of the previous day. Uh, during a particular stage of sleep, acetylcholine is released in the brain, and we believe that that modulates the brain's ability to take these experiences and link them to other experience that you had during the day and other experiences you've had uh, during your life, all as a way of pre-processing these events for long-term memory storage. Um, if your sleep is disrupted, um, and this is not REM sleep, by the way, it's pre-REM sleep where this happens. If your sleep is disrupted, it interferes with memory, so much so that one night of disrupted sleep can disturb your memories for weeks, six or eight weeks later. Um, having, you've, heard, you've all heard that you should get a good night's sleep and how important it is, but of course we all feel that something's got to give in our stressful, busy lives, and so we stay up too late or we get up too early or we, you know, we, we don't practice good sleep hygiene. But it's, it's critical and essential to have a good night's sleep for memory, uh, for memories to become consolidated and stored properly. Uh, naps help because uh, if, if, if you're the kind of person who can take a nap during the day, and not all people can, a 15 or 20 minute nap, not longer than that because that sets off a whole other set of chemical processes that can make you groggy, but 5, 10, 15 minute power nap uh, can help do some of that pre-processing of the memories and events so that when you go to sleep at night, some of that work's already done. Uh, and in uh, I think the other, the other thing about sleep is that uh, it helps to restore depleted neurochemicals and you know, uh, that's necessary to, to be able to work at your cognitive best. Okay. There was a question down, down here, I think. Yeah, the, sort of uh, the fourth row there. And then we'll go to the, the, the second row. Hello, I'm Kat. That was actually the same question about the sleep. Um, following on from that, you mentioning the mind-wandering 
What about microsleeps? Will they kind of come into that? And, you know, you have your 10 seconds and... Oh, yeah, microsleeps are great. I mean, as long as you're not driving or... <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Actually, you know, it's interesting. Uh, sleep is not an all-or-nothing state. That's another recent discovery. Uh, parts of your brain can fall asleep while the rest of your brain is not. So, and this is happening all the time, uh, and especially at lectures that I give. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you're, there, you've probably had the experience that something was just on the tip of your tongue and you couldn't get it, or you, you, you were going to ask somebody something and then you forgot what you were going to ask them, or you just learned their name and you just forgot it. In many cases, we now have an increased appreciation that's what happened is that that part of your brain has just fallen asleep. Uh, I mean, we... We think of it as all or nothing because it's so clear uh, when you wake up in the morning that you've been asleep. It's, it's not usually clear when you're asleep because you're not conscious, but you wake up and you recognize that there's been a fundamental change in your state. Uh, but uh, there are much less fundamental changes going on all the time. Great. The next question, I think, was in the front row here. Hi there. I think uh, you're probably the perfect uh, person to answer this question, considering what it says on the screen. Um, how can um, music uh, affect our productivity, and specifically, how can it help us enter or stay in a focused state? One of the most studied questions in all of experimental psychology is whether listening to music will help you study, uh, and if so, what kind? And I say this because almost every undergraduate who is asked to do a research project uh, thinks that maybe this would be something they should study. So there have been thousands of studies on this now. Uh, and, and even though it's fun to study with music, uh, it's actually quite detrimental to being productive most of the time uh, and because it's, it's fracturing your attention. Uh, there are a couple of special cases um, that I want to mention. One is that if you take a study break and you listen to the kind of music that allows you to relax and mind wander, that's tremendously helpful. Uh, I, that's a different kind of music for everybody. We've had people in the lab who say they relax with ACDC, and we've had people in the lab who say they relax with Enya, and other people say Enya drives them crazy, and ACDC pumps them up for an exercise workout. Very individual. Um, so... That's an important caveat, but uh, most people know what kind of music will put them in the mind-wandering mode. And, and so listening for 15 minutes as a break, longer, whatever, that's, that's beneficial. The other thing about um, music and, and, and other activities, there are some activities that we engage in that are quite repetitive and monotonous. Driving is one of them most of the time. Most of the time, if you're a competent driver, and the road is not uh, particularly full of traffic or particularly difficult, it doesn't take much attention or energy to, to, to drive. And you, you know this. You, you've, all of you who are drivers have had the experience that you zoned out. You're on the freeway and suddenly you realize you don't know where you are, whether you've hit your exit or gone past it, that kind of thing, uh, because you, it just didn't require all your concentration. The funny thing about driving Actually, I, flying a plane is, is, is quite similar. I, I studied for my pilot's license, and there's a whole lot of time up there where there's not much to do. Uh, the problem is, <laughs> every once in a while, either in a car or an airplane, something unexpected happens, and you need to be at your peak when that happens because a delay of a second or so could be 
a big difference between you know, whether you survive or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you manage to stay alert and engaged uh, when you're involved in an activity that's so monotonous? Well, music, the right kind of music, and lots of drivers have discovered this on their own uh, as, as you know, armchair scientists, the right kind of music raises your physiological arousal level just enough that you can stay engaged with the road. You're not you know, sort of lost into this half-dreamy state. Um, uh, the wrong kind of music engages you too much. Trans music probably wouldn't be good. Pulls you out of the road entirely. Uh, but you know, the right kind of music, uh, not too engaging, but just engaging enough. Um, interestingly, there's a profession that you, if you don't know about it, you would expect it to be the least likely uh, to share these qualities with driving. Uh, it's being a brain surgeon. Neurosurgeons uh, report that most of what they do is quite monotonous and boring because most of it is drilling through bone. I mean, most of the time they spend there is this you know, long, slow process of just drilling the hole so they can do their work. Uh, once they get in there, of course, they have to pay attention. But <laughs> what you find is that, uh, actually, I, I'll modify that. Uh, my colleague, Katrina Furlick, uh, a neurosurgeon, says that 90% of what neurosurgeons do is not actually brain surgery. Uh, it's releasing fluid that's built up in the brain. And she says any plumber could do that. <laughs> I mean, as long as he washed his hands. But <laughs> you don't need a neurosurgeon for drilling a hole in the skull. You don't need a neurosurgeon and all that training, 8, 12 years of training, for re- releasing the pressure of the fluid. What you need the neurosurgeon for is if something goes wrong, right? Uh, or, or for the actual brain surgery, which is a relatively small amount of what they do. So in the operating room, neurosurgeons are listening to music all the time. Uh, and, you know, it helps them for the same reason it helps drivers. Okay, the next question was at the end of the, the sixth row here. You want shorter answers? Uh, we've, we've got a, a few more minutes, so perhaps a couple more questions. Quick questions, quick answers would be great. Thanks. Yes, hi, hello. My, my question is related to sustaining attention or concentration. So actually two questions. Uh, does productivity stay um, sort of the same level uh, during the time that you're concentrating? What does research say about it? And is there an optimal like <laughs> time range where, you know, your concentration, where you're better concentrating it during this time and then your productivity falls. I'm sorry, what was the question? No, yeah, I'm so just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, our attention is going up and down all the time. It, it ebbs and flows. Uh, and, I mean, you know that. You've experienced that uh, subjectively. The optimal amount of time varies uh, by task and by what you're doing and time of day and and your own personal uh, makeup. But as a rule of thumb, uh, staying on a task for 45 minutes to two and a half hours uh, allows you to get immersed in it and engaged in it. Um, Less than that, it depends on the task. You don't need 45 minutes to take out the garbage. But, I mean, you you know what I'm talking about. more than that, and you begin to reach some kind of burnout. Now, we've all had these, these jags where we'll just work on something for eight hours without a stop, but you feel it the next day. If you want to sustain productivity day after day after day after day, the general rule is to do basically what the air traffic controllers do. Work for a couple hours, 
take a 15-minute break, work for a couple hours, take another break, uh, and, and you know, allow yourself enough time to settle in, but not so much time that you're hungry or, or, or bored or, or not replenished. Um, and um, I guess, yeah, that's, that's what I have to say about that. Okay. Uh, one, one last quick question, which will be from the back of the room, um, and then we'll need a, a brief answer, and then that will be all we have time for. Hi, thanks. Um, it's just a question about a lot of, I think, what's been talked about is about running a business or running a uh, country, emails, things like that. I was just wondering if there was a big difference between making those sort of decisions and making emotional decisions. And if so, if there is anything to do that can sort of help with making those decisions? Um, I don't know... Uh, I don't know of any literature that shows on a, a difference between emotional decisions and more business-like decisions. Um, the, the problem with a lot of decision-making as a rule, the reason decisions are difficult is because we don't have all the information. If you had all the information and you knew what the future was going to bring, decisions would be easy. Decisions are difficult because of uncertainty. And it's often uncertainty about uh, the likelihood that this decision will give you the desired outcome. And it's often that rests on an uncertainty about the quality and quantity of data you've been given. And a strategy that the experts recommend uh, is to break up a decision in it, into its components. Uh, I heard this advice from General Stanley McChrystal, from Sec former Secretary of State George Shultz, as well as David Allen. Uh, all converged on this idea that if you've got a difficult decision to make, figure out what piece of information you need to move things forward. So let's take the kind of fictitious example of I'm trying to decide whether to put Aunt Millie in a home, and I, you know, I, I can't make the decision. Well, that's not really an actionable task. What is actionable is getting more information. So what do I need to know before I can make that decision? Well, I might want to talk to Aunt Millie's doctor, I might want to talk to her siblings, maybe go visit some rest homes and see what they're like, talk to Aunt Millie, see how she feels about it, figure out what it's going to cost and who's going to pay for it. Those are actionable things. And uh, even though it's ultimately an emotional decision, put a loved one in a home, uh, there are some uh, actual logical and uh, objective uh, pieces of information you can get that will facilitate the decision. Okay, uh, my apologies to those of you who had a question for Dan but didn't get the chance to ask it. Uh, remember that, that Daniel will be staying around after the end of this event to sign books. The books are available on sale outside the hall. Uh, but for now, let's thank Daniel for an extremely interesting lecture. <laughs>